Amen. Well, thank you, Jordan, and thanks for having me tonight, guys. I am pumped to be here. Uh, like Jordan said, my name is Andrew, and I am on staff up at Salt Company in Cedar Falls at the University of Northern Iowa. That's where I went to school. I have been going to Candeo for eight years and have been on staff there for four. I brought a couple of pictures with me because if you're going to know me, you need to know the people that are most important to me. So that wonderful woman there, her name is Laura. That is my wife. We got married last July, and so we've been married for eight or nine months, whatever that is. Uh, she is my best friend, and I love her a lot, and I can't wait to spend forever with her. So she's amazing. That's Laura. Next picture. Uh, that's me and Laura and that. Oh, she's so cute. Oh, my word. All right. So is the baby in the middle. Uh, her name is Kenzie, guys. Uh, Kenzie is a little foster baby that we have in our home. So Laura, just to give you a taste of how amazing and godly she is, before we were even dating, before I was in the picture at all, she was just like trying to like leverage her life and resources for God and his kingdom and became a certified foster mom on her own. And so then I came into the picture, we started dating, we got engaged. And when we were engaged, Laura got a call for an 11-month baby girl um, named Kenzie, and we decided to say yes to that. And so Kenzie came and lived with Laura for the five months, six months leading up to our marriage, and has been in our home ever since. And so uh, I thought I was going to change zero diapers this year. I've changed like a thousand. So that was a mismatch expectation in marriage, but it's awesome. We love that little girl, and God's been writing a sweet story with her family, her mom, um, has actually come to know Jesus and is following him now, and we're actually going to get to give her back uh, at the end of this week, actually. She is at a visit right now, and we're going to get to give uh, her little girl back to her. So just kind of an amazing story of redemption. That's been a big part of our last year. Uh, the other big part of our life kind of right now that we're exploring is what Jordan said. So we live in Cedar Falls right now, but this summer we are moving to Ann Arbor, Michigan to start a brand new church and salt company at the University of Michigan. And so we are so excited to go to be sent out. There's about 40 people coming with us um, to go start this new church, and we are so excited. If you don't know that much about the University of Michigan, I knew like nothing about it like seven months ago, but I did not know I could love a university in place so much that I've been to so little. You guys, my heart is just beating right now for the maze in blue and for the students in Ann Arbor. Uh, in case you didn't know, Michigan is called the Harvard of the Midwest. I did not know that. Unlike Chris Huruska or whoever who was joking about Wayne State, Nebraska, Michigan is actually the Harvard of the Midwest. It has like a 16% acceptance rate. So it's super prestigious. It's super expensive. They have students from all 50 states. They have students from 139 different countries. And so it's kind of this like fast-paced, prestigious, try-hard university, which is awesome. But here's the thing that comes with that. That means that if there, you are a student at University of Michigan, you have spent your entire life building your resume and trying to be better than the person sitting next to you. Your entire life and identity is built upon your like, competitive edge next to your peers. And if you can be smarter, get just a little bit better score, and work as hard as you possibly can. And while that's like, great for them and they're running at 1,000 miles an hour, that comes with a ton of hopelessness, a ton of anxiety, and all these crushing expectations, whether that's from their parents, from their jobs, or expectations they put on themselves. And it is a very like, burnt-out, exhausted, anxious culture. And my hope is that for Salt Company, that Salt Company is the one place in a University of Michigan student's life where they do not have to show their resume at the door. Where actually it's all about what Jesus has done for them and not about what they have to do for Jesus. I don't want Salt Company just to be another arena for their like performance, just the Christian version of it. 
I actually want it to be the one place where they can find true hope and rest in the gospel. And at a university that has 48,000 students, it's massive. The biggest campus ministry that I can find is 50 students. That's like a sliver of this room. 48,000 students of the highest achieving, some of the smartest people in the country, and no one is reaching them. They honestly think they're too good for religion. They think the Bible is outdated. They think spirituality is something that they want nothing to do with. But I'm telling you, Jesus has other plans for that campus. And I think Jesus looks at that campus and says, and I believe what he says in Luke 10 too, when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The biggest problem, the reason the gospel hasn't reached the University of Michigan yet isn't because they're too unspiritual, isn't because they're too lost, it's because people haven't gone there to tell them. Jesus tells us in Luke 10 too that the harvest is plentiful, and I believe that that is true about Michigan. And so my ask for you guys tonight, if there's anything in you that like don't know what you're going to do when you graduate, if there's anything in you that are like wondering what to do when you leave this place, would you consider church planning? Would you just like take a step and have a conversation about what God might have for you next? Because here's the thing, when you guys graduate, you all have decisions to make. You got to get a job somewhere and you can make money anywhere. Are you going to make that decision as a business person or are you going to make that decision as salt and light of the world? Are you going to ask yourself, hey, where can I make the most money and where can I be comfortable? Or are you going to ask, God, where can I have the biggest impact for you? Where is your kingdom not being built right now? I want to be there. Where are you going, God? And you are a part of a church and a network that actually makes that decision really easy. There is a ton of on-ramps. Every year there's church plants going out. And this year we are going to Ann Arbor. And so honestly, like my humble ask for everybody sitting in this room is that if you are at all interested, if you are graduating in May or sometime in December, and you think, you know what, I don't really know what I'm going to do, I would love just a little bit more information. I'm going to be hanging around after Salt Company. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to church plant. I would love to hear your story and maybe see if God is unfolding something in you. So, sound good? Sweet. All right, enough about that. I came to talk a little bit about my church plant, but a lot more about the Word of God because that's more important. So, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter 3. That's where we're going to be at tonight. I'm just jumping right into your Ruth series. So Kyler preached on Ruth 2 last week. I'm preaching on Ruth 3 this week because that's how math works, one after the other. And just if you haven't been with us, I want to catch you up to speed just a little bit just to make sure we're all on the same page because we are like parachuting down into kind of a confusing narrative. And and tonight's passage, you need to understand what's happened so far. So chapter 1, we saw Naomi, and Naomi married a man, and she had two sons, and both of those two sons married women's names Ruth And not Oprah, Orpah, that one, got to get that one right. So Ruth and Orpah, and and the sad part of that story is all of those men died. Naomi's husband, Ruth's husband, Orpah's husband all passed away and left their wives in kind of a vulnerable state with no way to provide for themselves economically in a famine in the land. So they begin to mourn. Orpah decides that it would be better to go back to her hometown, and so she leaves Naomi, but Ruth decides to stay loyal to Naomi. She says, I will stay with you. And so Ruth and Naomi, they go back to Jerusalem to find maybe food, looking for some family, looking for some glimmer of hope. And then our man Boaz shows up on the scene, right? And what do we learn about Boaz? The first thing, what does it say about him? He says, Boaz, a prominent man of noble character. We're like, all right, Boaz, like you might have something to do here. And so Ruth begins to like, 
harvests some grain in his field, and she begins to work for him. And we begin to wonder, hey, what's going on between Ruth and Boaz? Is something going to happen? Is like this going to be the answer to Naomi's prayer? Like the Lord has abandoned me. I don't know what we're going to do, but maybe Boaz. And tonight in Ruth chapter 3, we actually see the rest of the story of Ruth and Boaz, their love story unfold. And you guys, it's amazing, but it's also kind of confusing and a little bit like scandalous if you're thinking about it. Especially if you are like a fourth century Hebrew speaking Jew, which is the audience of this book. This is like parental advisory, PG-13, kids got to go out because some of the language that is used here, all right? So like the steamy level on this romance is maxing out tonight in this chapter, and we're going to see it, all right? And you guys are kind of used to some of this stuff, all right? Everywhere on social media, Instagram relationships, TikTok videos and dances, movies, you guys are constantly inundated with images and videos on what love is supposed to look like. And what is like the essence of love? Is it physical? Is it uh, personality? Whatever it is, you guys are always getting these messages. But tonight, God sets forth his own love story for us. He gives us an example of what true love really looks like. And while this story is great and amazing and we're going to unpack it, it's actually meant to point us to an even greater story. The story between Ruth and Boaz, though amazing and romantic, is actually just a shadow of the love story between us and our Savior. And so we will learn just a little bit about romantic love tonight, but in many ways, all the different characters of this story will teach us something essential about the love of God. And so what is true love? What does God want us to understand about his love from this story? Let's look and see how this unfolds. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter... Shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. All right, so what does Naomi want for Ruth? She said it right there in verse 1. She said, I want to find rest for you so that you will be taken care of. Naomi wants to find rest for Ruth. And finding rest for Ruth, it doesn't mean like she just wants her to find a good place to take a nap. Or they're just really busy and she needs like a day off. No, this rest is a much more deep and profound word than just like a nap or something. Now, this word rest is the word that kings would use of their countries, that after they had been at battle, after they were out at war and crushed all their enemies and they had no more enemies and they had nobody pursuing them, their country was at rest. This rest is a deep, profound security, comfort, and stability for the long haul. The type of rest Naomi was looking for in Ruth isn't just an activity, it's a state of like, eternal being. She wants to be stable. She wants to be taken care of. They don't want to wonder where their next meal is going to come from. They don't want to wonder what their future is going to be like. And Naomi wants this. And back in these days, though, you need a husband for those things. If you are a woman, you cannot own property. You cannot have a job and support yourselves. And so you need a husband. And so Naomi's like, hey, we want this rest. We want this provision. We have to get you married. Now, I want to pause just for a second because that's probably incredibly offensive 
to at least half the room, but it probably should be to all the room. Uh, in the 21st century, these are the type of things that the Bible says that would make people from the outside point and look like, I could never follow a Bible that talks like that. Are you kidding me that a woman would need a man to provide for her? I hate that. Here's what's important to know. The Bible does not condone everything it comments on. Does that make sense? The Bible doesn't necessarily condone something just because it's comments on it. Yes, it's true. It does talk about this patriarchal society where women could not own property and could not support themselves, but it is not making a moral assessment on it. So the Bible doesn't condone everything it comments on, but given that that's just the reality of the situation they're in, the Bible is talking about just sharing the story of what went on. And so given the fact that Ruth needed a husband, Naomi and Ruth are probably dialoguing about this. They're like, hey, we came here to find food because of the famine, but also family, so we could be provided. And she's like, all right, maybe like bantering a little bit about who, who would be a good husband. And look what she says in verse 2. Now isn't Boaz... And if I'm Ruth in this situation, and Naomi, like, we're talking about maybe a husband, you're like, hey, uh, isn't Boaz? And Ruth would be like, cute, yeah. And Naomi goes like, no, our relative. You're like, what? <laughs> wait, wait, what do you mean? We're talking about Boaz and marriage and our relative. That is weird. That is gross. I don't want that. All right, before your mind starts, like, getting all weird and going down, like, just messed up paths, it's something totally different here, all right? So if you're not familiar with Old Testament law, there's this thing called leveret marriage. And what leveret marriage was is when a husband were to die or, God forbid, leave his wife, then it was the legal obligation of that man's closest relative to marry that woman. And this wasn't meant to be like cruel or oppressive to the woman. It was actually meant to be really kind. Because if he left or he died, she would end up being like subject to poverty. She would lose her social standing and status, and everything about her life was crumble. And so this was instituted as like a grace, as something to protect the women. This was a uniquely Christian, uniquely kind thing to happen. And so this relative, it's not a relative of Ruth's or a relative of Naomi's. It's a relative of their husband that had passed. And so actually, Boaz is a more suitable candidate because he has a legal right to marry Ruth because she was related to him. And so this is actually a huge spark of like hope for them because, wait, wait a second, we moved here and Boaz, this man that's been taking care of us, this man that has been super generous, is actually eligible to marry me. This is amazing. God might be doing something. And so given that, Naomi was aware of these like systems and processes and so she comes up with a plan. And she'd figured out that Boaz was, in fact, a relative of theirs, and he worked on this farm, and that night, she was, he was going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor, which all you need to know about that, he was going to a more secluded place to separate some chaff from the actual grains that you could eat and sell. And so he was going on a more remote place, maybe by himself, maybe with some other people, that night, and it's a perfect opportunity for Ruth to get a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time with Boaz and make her intentions clear. And so the plan, it's going to happen tonight. And what does Naomi tell her to do? He says, hey, tonight, verse 3, she says, wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. And so tip number one, she says, hey, put some perfume on, put some new clothes, which is great, you guys. If you're going on a date, shower. And I know that, hey, I know that seems obvious and like it shouldn't need to be said. 
I have been discipling freshman men for way too many years where that wasn't obvious. Dudes, shower. Second point, an axe bomb is not the same thing as a shower. Leave that crud, I got an amen for that one. Leave that crud in middle school. We're done with axe body spray. Kill it, never again. It shouldn't happen. Take a shower, use soap, little bit of deodorant, little bit of spritz, don't overdo it on the cologne maybe, and just go on the date and have fun, all right? Shower, it's a good thing. Hygiene is great. All right, so is Ruth... Or is Naomi just telling Ruth, hey, you smell bad, go grab some herbal essence and take a shower? No, all right, that's not actually what's happening here. This isn't a hygiene tip, this is an identity issue. It's not a hygiene issue, it's an identity issue because Ruth was a widow in mourning. And so back then, when your husband died, you would put on these old, probably dark clothes, maybe they were ripped, probably dirty, to signal to the world that you were grieving your husband. You would wear mourning clothes and mourning robes. And so for years, as as Ruth was grieving the loss of her husband, she wore these clothes that symbolized the world, I'm grieving. I'm not ready to move on. I am a widow. But as she got to know Boaz... As she like, got farther and farther away from that, she became ready to be married, to move on. And so this was not just like an exchange of hygiene, it was an exchange of identity. She is now putting on new clothes and new perfume to symbolize to the world, but specifically to Boaz, that it is okay for him to pursue her. She is enhancing her female-like attractiveness, that's true, but not in some like weird sexual or seductive way. It's just in a high-character way that shows Boaz he wouldn't be intruding on her previous marriage if he pursued her. And so she does that. She puts on nicer clothes, she showers, she goes down to the threshing floor and waits until he finishes eating and drinking. And Naomi tells her, when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. And that's really important. I love that Naomi takes the time. She's like, hey, notice where he lies. You're not going to want to get this wrong, all right? Keep your eye on Boaz. If you do this to the wrong guy, it's going to be really weird. Notice where he lies down. Keep your eyes on Boaz because we don't want to mess this one up. And so here's where it gets wild. In verse 4, the next thing she says is something that is absolutely unthinkable in that day. Look at what she says in verse 4. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, and go to him. Uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will explain to you what you should do. Guys, in the original Hebrew, the language here is really ambiguous, borderline sexual. And as the outside readers, we are kind of left in the dark on what exactly Naomi is saying. Like, hey, what do you mean go to him and lay under his covers? Uncover a man while he is sleeping? Is she, like, suggesting what we think she's suggesting? It's kind of, like, cringy, honestly, what she's telling her to do. But I think we would be foolish to think that Naomi is suggesting something scandalous here. And we will see shortly that Ruth would never intend to do that either. And so even though this request is kind of out there, it seems kind of crazy, what does Ruth respond in verse 5? Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. What a picture of devotion from Ruth and hope in her God. Devotion to Naomi and hope in her God. And so here she goes. That night, Ruth, she goes to the threshing floor, the place where they sifted the grain, and hides maybe behind some like barley or some wheat or something, and she waits. 
And she waits for Boaz, watching him work, just waiting for him to be done. And put yourself in Ruth's shoes for a moment. Oh my word, if you're going to like basically propose a marriage to some guy and you're supposed to wait till he goes to sleep, you're like heart is racing, you're a little bit sweaty, like this is a big deal for her. She's like putting her reputation, even maybe her life on the line. Like if this goes wrong, if this gets interpreted incorrectly, Ruth could be stoned for this. And so I just imagine her like that pit in the stomach welling up as she's waiting for him, just watching him work, counting down the minutes and the hours until she goes and executes this plan that Naomi has for her. And so finally, Boaz, he kind of wraps up for the night. She watches him put the tools away, take out his dinner, whatever he brought, whatever the fourth century version of Uncrustables is, that's what he was eating for dinner. He's a single man. It's all he's got. So he's eating his Uncrustables, and he's just, he gets that done. She's like, all right, he's done eating. Where's his bed? All right, I see where he lays down. All right, this is the moment. He's laying down. Like, do I wait 20 minutes to go? Do I wait 30? He, he needs to be asleep. I don't want to scare him. I don't want to have, like, I don't want him to see me coming. Do I wait an hour? And Ruth, as she's just nervous, she goes. And what does it say in verse 7? After he ate, drank, and he was in good spirits, he went to lie down. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And in verse 8, at midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. He was startled. Well, no, duh, he was startled. You guys, he was probably not expecting the breeze, but the covers were pulled back. And so he was just exposed down there and got cold. And there was someone else in his bed. And what does he say to her? He says, he has a, by the way, he has a shockingly mild response. <laughs> hey, who are you? Guys, if I woke up in my bed tonight and someone was in it that was not supposed to be there, I would go buck wild. I'd be throwing haymakers. I'd be kicking. I know I'm little, but I'd get scrappy. No way is my first response what Boaz says, like, hey, what's your name? Like, I don't know if he's shocked or confused or what, but he just like takes it like a champ and is like, hey, who are you? Not how I would react, but Boaz, a lot of self-control. He's playing it cool here. And here's where Ruth deviates from the plan. All right, Naomi, she gave her specific instruction, but Ruth, she kind of takes it into her own hands. Remember what Naomi said. She said, go lie with him, uncover him, then he will tell you what to do. What a dumb assumption. (laughs) Naomi is like, hey, go lay with Boaz. When you wake him up, he'll know exactly what to do. No, he won't. There's a strange woman in his bed. That was like way too big of an assumption for Naomi to make. And so Ruth, who probably has a more accurate read of the situation at this point, is like, oh my gosh, this dude has no idea. Like, I'm going to have to help him out just a little. (laughs) Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. And so she deviates from the plan. And she, like, says basically the riskiest sentence to ever come out of her mouth. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. She replied, take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. What did she just do? See, in this moment, Ruth, she goes for broke. She risks it all and basically says to Boaz, I want you to pursue me for marriage. She says, take me under your wing. And literally in the Hebrew, that means spread out the edge of your garment. And in that day, that is like some overtly sexual language. Spread out your garment, open up your bed to me, is basically what she's telling him. And how Boaz reacts to this statement of Ruth 
teaches us two things. The first is this, one, Boaz doesn't assume that Ruth is pursuing him sexually. Boaz assumes that Ruth's character is pure, not promiscuous. And two, it shows us that they are on the same page of the deeper meaning that she is proposing. So this same language in the original Hebrew, though potentially sexual to an outside listener, is actually used in a couple different places in the Old Testament. And for two God-fearing people, Ruth and Boaz, who trusted God and knew their Bibles, this language would have meant so much more to them. I'm going to read one of the passages to you, and in this passage, God is talking to the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 16.8, and he says this. God says this. He says, Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. The One of the only other places that this language is used is a place where God is looking at the nation of Israel in a broken, vulnerable state and saying, I will make a covenant with you. I will pull you under my garment. I will make you intimate with me. I will protect you. I will guard you. I will clothe your shame. And I will do this all under the umbrella of a covenant relationship. And so if this is any indication of what Ruth wanted from Boaz, the request of hers went far beyond sexual relations. She was saying, in effect, I would like to be the one to whom you pledge your faithfulness and with whom you make a marriage covenant. I want to be taken under your wing. I want to be protected by you. I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you. And so Ruth very boldly makes her desires known. But in doing this, she has committed something that could be misunderstood as radically scandalous, overtly sexual, and could even get her stoned. And so basically, her life and her future are on the line here, and the ball has been passed to Boaz. Everything in Ruth's life hinges on Boaz's response to this marriage proposal. And look at what he says to her. In verse 10, he says, Then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. Which he starts out great, you guys. May the Lord bless you. In essence, he's like, Yes, I accept. That's amazing. And then... Boaz, what are you doing, my dude? My daughter? What a weird thing to say, all right? We're going to learn in a couple of verses that there is a bit of an age gap between Boaz and Ruth. Maybe that's why it took so long for their, like, relationship to flourish a little bit. They were trying to, like, see if it would be weird or not. Boaz is quite a bit older than her. Why you got to make it weird by calling her daughter? All right, so my wife, she is a few years older than me, not as many as Ruth and Boaz, but the first time I asked her out... And I do say first time because it took a couple. The first time I asked her out, do you know what she told me? She was like, oh, Andrew, I'm going to be honest. I kind of like have you in like a fun little brother category. Not really. I know. I have never been punched so hard in the stomach by words in my life. I was like, oh, that does not feel good. You guys, how does Ruth feel? She just like did a marriage proposal and Boaz is like, my daughter. Like, little brother's bad, but daughter? Oh, my word. Like, read the room, man. Like, you got to turn the corner here. And so he's like, all right, my daughter, 
You have shown more kindness than before, he keeps going, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. Dude, there it is. Turn the corner, Boaz. We're moving out of daughter into lover. I will do you. I will do for you. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I will do for you. Hey, recover. Bring it back. Bring it back. I will do for you whatever you say. Since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. You guys, Boaz loves her back. This is great. She put it all on the line. She's like, I need you to marry me. Like, I'm putting everything, my reputation, my life, and her greatest risk turns into her greatest reward. Boaz loves her back. And he's honestly a bit humbled and honored, even as he struggles to believe this. He's like, I, I can't actually believe, like, you didn't go for someone younger than me or richer than me, better looking. Like, he's humbled and, and honestly a bit confused and surprised that she would actually love him. But what a relief they both must be feeling in this moment, right? I mean, Ruth, she just put everything on the line. The man she wants to pursue her for marriage has actually just said that, yes, I want that too, And for Boaz, there's this young foreign woman that's been coming to your field and you've been like trying to make it like a little bit plain that you'd be down to like pursue her a little bit. I mean, you've been giving her extra grain and giving her a job and protecting her, but you don't know. And finally, two people that this whole time like have been wondering if they're seeing the same thing as the other person, if it's all adding up, they come together and profess their love for one another. What has been patient and subtle all along is now very passionate and very clear. And let's look at what happens next, all right? So you've got two people. They're in love with one another. They want to marry each other. They've just confessed it. There's this moment of, like, excitement and passion, and they're under the stars together, and they're alone, and it's beautiful, and you can write a book about it. But it's dicey at best for purity, all right? I mean, think about it. Two people that just have this very, like, high-intensity love moment together are alone, under the covers, with no one else watching, and the plot even thickens. Look at verse 12. Boaz says this. He says, Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, That's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until until morning. You guys, this moment is building. There is excitement. There is intimacy. There is love in the air. And yet, Boaz puts the brakes on for the sake of righteousness. See, Boaz, he is an eligible family redeemer, but there is someone closer in relationship. And legally, he gets the right first. And so he puts like the brakes on this kind of emotionally charged with maybe some like sexual overtones moment and stops in the name of righteousness. What an act of self-control by Ruth and by Boaz. He is willing to sacrifice what he wants the most, which is Ruth, and relationship with her. He's willing to stop that, to sacrifice that for the sake of doing the things the way the Lord wants them to do. I pray my heart would be like that. I pray that my heart would be willing to say no to the things I want the most 
if that means I cannot be obedient to Jesus. I pray that like Ruth and like Boaz, that this room would be a room of people who are able to say no to their strongest desires in order to say yes to their deepest desires. You see, I hope that each and every one of us have at a deepest core level want to honor God and please God. That's what we want. But I know that because we're sinful, because we're passionate people, we can get into situations where something seems stronger than that. And I pray that we would be people like Ruth and like Boaz who in those moments would say no to our strongest desires to say yes to our deepest desires. And that for the sake of honoring God and for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of being obedient to him, we would say no even when we do not want to. Especially in moments of sexual temptation. You see, this is unthinkable, especially for the time they were living in. This book takes place during the time of the judges. And what the Bible calls that time, it says, In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in a time when sexual immorality is running wild, people are sleeping with whoever, whenever, when the motto of the day is, If it feels good, it must be good. When all that is true... Ruth and Boaz still hold the line, and the sun rises on their purity. Listen to what John Piper, a pastor and theologian, has to say about this. He said, listen, the mood of American life today is if it feels good, do it, and to hell with your guilt-producing puritanical principles of chastity, purity, and faithfulness. But I say to you, if the stars are shining in their beauty— and your blood is thudding like a hammer, and you are safe even in the privacy of your own home, stop for the sake of righteousness. Let the morning dawn on your purity. Don't be like the world. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. Profoundly in love, profoundly passionate, but powerful in self-control. Commit to righteousness. Soul Company, would we be distinctly different than the world around us? All of college is just built around obeying your desires. Sleep with who you want to sleep with. Eat whenever you want to eat. Sleep whenever you want to eat. Go to class whether, you, whether only when you want to. Guys, would Soul Company be different? Would we be a people that can say no to those things because we want to walk in righteousness and purity? Let the morning dawn on our purity, not our shame. And for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of obedience, let's tell ourselves no, because true love walks in purity. They fought for obedience even at the cost of their deepest desires. All right, so let's see how this story ends. They go through the whole night. They live pure. They say no to what they want and say yes to righteousness, yes to God. And then the next morning, Boaz sends her away with six measures of barley. And he sends her away early in the morning when there's no one around under the cover of darkness, not because he's trying to cover something up, but he just doesn't want the gossip train to run wild. If people see that, they might get the wrong idea. Nothing bad actually happened, but he doesn't want people to think that something might have. And so he covers it up, She goes out in the dark and he tells people, do not say anything about this woman. And he sends her home with six measures. And that's a ton just for Ruth and Naomi. But why does he send her with that much? Look at what Ruth says in verse 17. 
Ruth, explaining this situation to Naomi, says, He gave me these six measures of barley because he said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Do you recognize this language? It's actually the opposite language of what Naomi said in Ruth chapter 1 when she was depressed and hopeless. Look at what it said in Ruth 1.21. Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Salt Company, Boaz knew this story. He knew how lonely, he knew how vulnerable, he knew how empty Naomi felt. And those six measures of barley and the message he sent back with Ruth was meant to be a booming voice that says, not anymore. It was meant to be a message loud and clear to Naomi that says, hey, as long as I am alive, you will not be empty anymore. I promise I will provide for you. The way you felt, you will feel that no longer as long as I am alive. This story is amazing. What a man of character. What a man that he would commit to provide for them, whether or not he ever ended up getting to marry Ruth. This is an amazing story. And I'm not going to spoil the ending. This chapter ends, 18, Naomi said, My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless you solve this today. I'm going to leave it to Jordan next week to talk about what happens with this other guy and the rest of the story, but here's what I don't want us to miss. This is an amazing story of love and purity, romanticism, but this story was not just meant to be the Christian version of a Hallmark movie, all right? I think someone told me the other day they made it into one, Redeeming Love. I think it's out. Haven't seen it. Don't know if I should recommend it or not. But this story is not just to be the Christian version of a Hallmark movie, all right? This story is meant to be a picture of the gospel. And for each and every character in this story, they show us something unique about the love of God that we see on display in their life. You see, the love of our God is not just like the love of one person to another, The love of our God, it's incomprehensible. It's not even just like the best, purest, most amazing love that you can think of multiplied to the infinite degree. No, our love, the love of our God is way bigger, way better than even that. No, the love of our God is so intense, so multifaceted, so incomprehensible that we cannot grasp it in our entire lives. But, One of the great privileges of the Christian life is that as we mature day by day, year by year, we can little by little grow in that knowledge. And so tonight, we're not going to tackle the impossible mountain of understanding the heights and depths and width of God's love, but we are going to look at, real quick, three aspects, I think, of God's love that this story uniquely and particularly displays in the gospel. And so the first aspect of God's love that we see on display is that God's love is patient. All right, love is patient. We see that all over this story, right? We see it in Ruth. Naomi and her, they were desperate for food. They were desperate for family. And yet, this story with Boaz, it didn't unfold right away. No, for days and weeks, maybe months, maybe even years, Ruth woke up early in the morning and went out to the field and gathered grain with no promise that she would have grain again with no promise that Boaz would actually be her husband. They were patient. She trusted God. 
Ruth didn't just go for the first attractive guy or the first rich guy she saw. No, she didn't settle. She waited patiently. And even the end of this chapter, it ends with two women, still not redeemed, still waiting on the Lord. We see this all over the Bible. In the 1 Corinthians 13, the biggest chapter on love, it starts out, love is patient. In the Psalms, we see, wait on the Lord, all ye people. There is something incredibly honoring in love about being patient, about being patient with somebody, about being committed to them even when you don't know what's around the corner, being committed to them even if they're so slow to change. There's something incredibly honoring in love about being patient. God's love is patient, and we see that all over this story. The second aspect of God's love that we see is God's love provides. Love provides. Naomi provides for Ruth. Once she gets hope again, she begins scheming and dreaming and tries to like provide a way for Ruth to have a husband. All along, Boaz has been providing grain for Ruth, a job for Ruth, protection for Ruth, and at great cost to himself, Boaz has already been providing for Ruth, which brings us to the third and final aspect of love that we see. Love has a price. Love is patient, love provides, and love has a price. You see, love in this story especially had a great price and a great risk. It was risky for Naomi to come to Jerusalem, right? And it was risky for Ruth to go to Boaz. And it was even risky for Boaz. It cost him something to continually provide for Ruth. And I'm sure it cost him some of his reputation to like boldly just pronounce, hey, I love this foreign Moabite younger woman. That probably would have been hard for him to admit publicly, but love comes at a price. Love causes you to risk things. Love compels risks. It's just what's true. Love is costly. It will cost you more than you ever thought, and it will compel you to risk things you never thought you would risk. And so how do those examples teach us about the love of God? Why is it important that we know that God's love is patient, that his love provides, and that it pays a price? Guess here's why it's important. Think about it just for a minute. Picture God, the God of the universe. I mean, literally, the one who spoke the world into being by his mere words. He is the creator, the almighty God, Lord of the world, like God, that type of God. In all his majesty, in all his glory, is patient with you. Isn't that wild to think about? Again and again, we do a really bad job of following him, of obeying him and loving him. But he doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't shake his head in disapproval. He waits. And with arms open and a smile on his face, he says, I'm still here. I'm waiting for you. I'm not going to force myself in. I'm going to stand at the door of your heart and I'm going to knock. And he might keep knocking, but he's not going to kick the door down because he's patient with you, and he waits for you to come to him, and even when you deserve his wrath and his judgment, he has patience. Here's why that's incredible. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Look what it says. It says, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Salt Company, if our God was not a patient God, we would all be dead right now. If our God wasn't patient, 
He would have killed us the moment we sinned because the penalty of sin is death. Praise God that he is patient because if he wasn't, we wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't have even been given a chance, but the reason he's patient, the reason he's slow to punish evil is so that we might come to him. He's patient and he withholds the righteous judgment so that we may be given a chance. Now, why would he do that? How is he able to just be patient, to just hold back the punishment that is due for sin? How is that even possible? It's possible because not only is his love patient, his love provides and his love paid the price. You see, God the Father can be patient with sinners because he provided the sacrifice of his son to pay the price of our guilt. Jesus can be patient with us because he provided himself as a sacrifice to pay the price of our sin. That's what he did on the cross. He was our substitute and he died in our place. You see, the reason God does not strike us down for the evil we commit is because Christ was struck down in our place. You see, on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Father turned his back on the Son. He struck him down. He abandoned him so that you and I could stand in his presence. The Father turned his face away from the Son so that he could turn his face away from our sin. That's the gospel. That's what it means that God is patient, that his love provides. While we were still sinners, while it was impossible for us to get back to God, the love of God provided a way and he paid the price. Guys, this story of Ruth and Boaz is such a small glimmer of the love that our Father has for us. See, Boaz's provision for Ruth is just a tiny little picture of God's provision. Yeah, he gave her grain, but God gave us his son. And yes, Ruth risked her life, but Christ gave up his life for us. And this story, it's great and it's wonderful, but it's just a shadow of the gospel. It's just a picture of the truer and better thing. Jesus Christ is the better Boaz. He is the truer and greater Ruth, and he is the person that this story is meant to be all about. And so romance is great and love is amazing, but the love of the father who would send his own son to die in our place is a story that should capture our heart and transform our lives forever. Will you guys pray with me? Father, this story is amazing. Two women that are in a desperate place that need somebody to redeem them that needs somebody to provide for them, to protect them. And you sent Boaz. Jesus, in a far greater way, we are that desperate woman. Desperate to get back for you. Desperate for somebody to provide a way for us to be in right relationship with you. And here comes the truer and greater Boaz, your son, Jesus. And with love in his eyes, our entire future, our entire destiny hinges upon how Jesus responds to us. And thank you, Jesus, that your response to us is to love us, is to say, I will be there for you. I will respond to you and enter into a covenant. Jesus, I'm so thankful for that. I needed that in my own life. And so, Jesus, we worship you now. And we praise you that you are the God who redeems us. Amen.